0: Ireland's Changing Nature, Episode 2 Taming. I've always been fascinated by the big golden discs on display in the National Museum. Gorgeous, bold neck pieces shaped like a crescent moon. Paper thin, lightly patterned, and dazzlingly beautiful. We've often wondered about the people who might have worn these gold pieces more than 4,000 years ago, when culture, society and nature were undergoing more dramatic changes than had ever been seen before.
1: These are very different ways of living and of managing the landscape, and some colleagues see this as the first time people are controlling the landscape.
0: In this episode of Ireland's Changing Nature I'm traveling back in time thousands of years ago to discover what impact our ancestors had on our wild landscapes and to investigate if there's anything we can learn from our past that might just help us save the wild Ireland of today.
2: It's not just about bringing wild nature back to a landscape, it's bringing ourselves back to wild nature and re-knitting these connections that we've lost. I'm Anya Murray and this is Ireland's Changing Nature.
0: In episode one, we discovered that early humans here, hunter-gatherers, lived alongside enormous brown bears. They had an intimate knowledge of plants, trees, birds and other animals all of which provided both material and spiritual sustenance. For 4,000 years, hunter-gatherer culture thrived here, living in tune with all the goings-on in their natural environment. These hunter-gatherers were followed by the first farmers, who transformed the relationship between humans and the land they lived from by clearing woodlands planting crops, and by farming, sheep, cattle and pigs. But the most dramatic change was yet to come with the onset of the Bronze Age. It was during the Bronze Age when people first learned to transform rock into metal. About 4,300 years ago, the Bronze Age began. This is Michael O'Connell, professor in National University of Ireland at Galway and a paleoecologist who uses plant fossils to unlock the secrets of the ancient
3: past. These were the first peoples who had learned to use metals, Bronze is made of copper and tin, and at this time, again, a huge new impetus into clearing the landscape, making way for farming, Why farming? Because the population expanded and so they needed more food to support this larger population. The earliest known mining in Ireland took place four
0: and a half thousand years ago. Mine shafts were dug eight metres into the earth, then fires were lit down inside the shafts to shatter the rock so lumps of metal ore could be cleaved away from the surrounding rocks. Once extracted, the copper ore was put in a furnace to smelt it down and produce copper.
1: During the Bronze Age, we know that there is
0: extensive clearance of woodland. This is Mariel McClatchy, a professor in the School of Archaeology in University College Dublin. And we can see this from
1: many different types of evidence. So we look at the archeological evidence and we can see people clearing spaces for their settlements, for their farms. And also if we look at the pollen record, we can see changes in the composition of woodland. Um, And we can see reduction of woodland and we can see an increase in grasses and herbs. So there's certain types of arable weeds. And that's telling us that people are clearing woodland and they're creating open spaces for living and for farming. From around 4,000 years ago, we start seeing very large-scale changes in how the landscape is organised. People are shaping the landscapes in very different ways, and we start seeing much more construction of fields and field systems and field walls. If you're walking through the landscape in Bronze Age Ireland, you're much more aware that it's quite an agricultural landscape. Food production is much more visible at this time. And we have lots and lots more evidence for the growing of crops and the raising of animals as well. And we start seeing more regularly evidence for crop surpluses.
0: While impressive gold neck pieces are what initially intrigued me and made me so curious about these people, it's another artefact on display in the National Museum that was the most impactful on the landscape. The big bronze axes.
1: People are clearing woodland during the Bronze Age to create spaces for their homes, uh, to create spaces for their farming. Um, But another thing that they're chopping down the woodland for is to get wood so that they can build great big fires that are needed to make metal objects. So this is the Bronze Age um, and the age of metal axes and objects and jewelry and all sorts of things. Um, And to create these, what you need are very intense fires and you need quite a lot of wood to do this.
0: Around 100 mature oak trees were needed to melt the metal ores to make one tonne of usable metal. Metal axes were much stronger and sharper than stone axes, so people could fell more trees and clear more land. This was a newfound power to change the environment.
1: These are very different ways of living and of managing the landscape. And some colleagues see this as the first time people are controlling the landscape or managing the landscape to a different kind of level.
0: This was the first time that people produced and used hard, shiny metal, that it was made out of rocks taken from inside the earth This must have seemed an almost magical transformation, unnatural even. But this giant technological leap came at a cost. What we
1: see from the Bronze Age is
0: increasing
1: deterioration of soils. So you have people removing woodland um, and the soils, which means the soils can't drain freely. um, And then you've got waterlogging of the soils
0: after that. So you've got more formation of blanket bog Previously productive lands were being converted into relatively barren blanket bogs.
1: We know that people during the Bronze Age, for the first time, are having a really big impact on the ecology of their landscapes.
0: People were felling a lot of trees, growing crops more than ever before, and developing food surpluses. And this was the first time we have evidence of something we think of as a far more recent phenomenon, nitrogen pollution.
1: So we know that for the last 150 years, humans have fundamentally altered the global nitrogen cycle. And that's because of things like fossil fuel combustion um, and biomass practices and certain agricultural practices and these changes to the global nitrogen cycle are
0: affecting our natural environmental systems. Nitrogen is constantly being recycled by nature, in soil, in growing and decaying plants, in the air and in water, in what is known as the nitrogen cycle. Today, nitrogen is one of the most significant pollutants in our waterways, but it's quite a surprise to discover that humans began altering the nitrogen cycle as far back as the Bronze Age. And what we're seeing is from this period, um, because of
1: things like deforestation, so people cutting down the woodland with their metal axes, and because of agricultural intensification, which we're seeing during the Bronze Age, these changes are contributing to an enrichment in nitrogen. It's nothing like the scale we see nowadays, it's nothing like the impact of our behaviour nowadays, but it's enough that landscape modifications and human behaviour 3,000 years ago impacted our ecologies and our, our environments. It's the first time that people were really harming ecosystems. Farming is having enough of an impact on local ecologies, on the lakes, that it's affecting these freshwater ecologies. So, what we're seeing is people's relationship with nature is really changing at this time. They're having an impact on those lakes, but what's interesting is the lakes recover. Nowadays, perhaps with much more intensive farming, sometimes people are having an impact with their activities on the lakes, and the lakes aren't recovering.
0: The pollution that was happening in the Bronze Age, it was minuscule compared to the contamination that is occurring today. But it's the first inkling of a significant rupture when humans began to unwittingly alter natural cycles through adopting new technologies. While the changes that occurred during the Bronze Age were massive socially and environmentally, people were still heavily reliant on raw nature to provide the sustenance of daily life. They were still foraging in the wild for a lot of their food. When you clear the land, around the edges
1: of the fields, you have these new habitats growing up. And it's on this kind of scrubby land where you'll find things like nut-bearing shrubs and fruit-bearing shrubs. They're creating these habitats that have foods um, for gathering. Even though agriculture is important in Bronze Age Ireland, people haven't abandoned gathering. They're eating farmed
0: foods and wild foods. Woodland edges are where edible fruits and nuts grow. So the mosaic of wild woodlands and cleared fields gave people the best of both worlds. Ample supplies of hazelnuts, crab apples and the blackberries alongside cultivated crops such as wheat and barley. And this in itself would mean that people were still deeply attuned to wild nature and the seasonal bounty offered up in the landscape. But what about the stories that people had to explain the workings of the natural world? only tell us so much. I want to know if the beliefs and customs reflected the deep dependence on nature. It's always the beliefs we hold as a society, the stories we share that shape our values and determine how we see our place in the
4: world around us. So I went looking for the stories. One of the things that strikes one when one encounters a bog body is that one is dealing with a real human being. I spoke with
0: a man called Eamon Kelly, who for many years was the keeper of antiquities at
4: the National History Museum. With a bog body, you can literally come face to face with with a potential ancestor.
0: Through decades of unearthing ancient things on behalf of the National Museum, Eamon has some astonishing insights about how our Bronze Age ancestors viewed their place in nature.
4: Human society was, was much closer to the land. The belief was that the natural world was a sacred thing. It was a part, in a way, of the, the spiritual world. And humanity depended upon the natural world for its sustenance and survival.
0: According to Bronze Age beliefs, The land, the source of fertility, was what produced new life and thus was perceived as female in gender.
4: There were two basic concepts. One was that the the earth was female and that it was the interaction between the earth and the sun which ensured fertility and growth.
0: In time, the female became the divine, and the ultimate deity was the earth goddess.
4: The land itself was a sacred thing and was seen to embody the goddess of the land who would have been the goddess of the tribe. The, the king represented the sun god and married the earth goddess in his inauguration ritual. And the king at his inauguration married the Earth Goddess, who was in fact the land over over which he was going to reign. This amazes me, that
0: here in Ireland we had human kings marrying a conceptual Earth Goddess,
4: in effect, marrying the land itself. The king, because he was married to the Goddess, then was the interface between human society and the other world.
0: The bounty of the land was down to the degree of respect for Mother Nature, mediated by the sacred human king.
4: The natural world was seen to be in balance when the productivity of the earth was good, when crops were giving good yields, when the farm animals were increasing and were healthy. and it was important to keep the other world happy otherwise nature would break down storms could suddenly arise natural disasters of one sort and another floods or fires for example the animals might become ill in plagues the society might be attacked people might be enslaved and taken away, and so on.
0: When the divine earth goddess became displeased with the performance of the people, as represented by the human earthly king, there were dire consequences for the king.
4: If things went very badly wrong, a decision would be taken. The existing king would be sacrificed as an offering to Aswarz, the goddess.
0: Eamon and colleagues at the National Museum came face to face with the bodies of several of these Bronze Age kings, the bog bodies.
4: The bodies that have been found of individuals, young adult men who have been sacrificed. Are in fact the bodies of kings who have been sacrificed because they have been perceived of as having failed to perform their kingly roles adequately.
0: The best known examples are Old Crockenman, uncovered from a bog in Offaly in 2003, and Cloyne Cavan Man from a bog in Meath,
4: perfectly preserved in waterlogged acidic peat where they were deposited. It was clear. That these were individuals that did not engage in manual work, for example. Now that was something. Old Man from County Offaly wore an armlet on one arm and that was a designation of rank.
0: But Old Man was ritually killed with a stab wound to the heart, decapitated and then his body was cut in half. I wanted to know why were these sacrificed kings deposited
4: in peat bogs rather than given a proper burial The reason why the bodies were placed in in boglands was because the bogs were perceived as very very special places they were portals to the other world it was the entrance to the other world bogs form natural boundaries the boundary It's what gives form to the territory, and in other words, it gives form to the goddess. These were very sacred places.
0: The mutilated bodies of these kings were being offered up to the land, the physical manifestation of the earth goddess. I am stunned at this aspect of our history, The stories Eamon has shared about the bog bodies shines a light on how Bronze Age people believed that wrongful actions by humans would jeopardize the bounty of nature. And all this was bound up in a belief in the Earth Goddess. And while killing the king to appease the Earth Goddess is radical, the crucial message for me here is that 4,000 years ago, in Ireland, People understood that we cannot dominate nature with impunity. Maintaining harmony between people and the natural world was a principle
4: of the utmost importance. Eru is the sovereignty goddess and fertility goddess of the island of Ireland after whom the island is named.
0: Erin means literally the land of the goddess Eru. And there are elements of these beliefs that continued to resonate in Irish
4: minds ever since then. The goddess was a a fundamental figure in early pagan religion in Ireland. And unfortunately, the goddess figures became disguised as queens or, or heroes in the writings of the early Christian historians in Ireland. But we're all familiar with some of the most famous of them. Queen Maeve, for example, was in fact the sovereignty goddess of Tara, uh, one of the greatest of the early earth goddesses. A lot of these pre-Christian beliefs continued as part of the folk belief of society right down to the end of the Gaelic period, at the end of the Middle Ages. We can see that in the poetry from the 17th century, especially the Ashling poems, which constantly make reference back to the goddess.
0: As a school child, I learned stories about Queen Maeve, that the folk legends still circulating today have their roots in Bronze Age beliefs about the divinity of nature, about the need for harmony with the goddess of the land. Well, that's something I never expected to discover making this documentary series about our relationship with nature. And I love that the customs and folklore still familiar to us today can be traced back to a belief system which enshrined the need for balance between humans and our natural environment. These stories are pretty far-fetched, and yet they have an eerie resonance today. And just as the beliefs morphed their way through time, the landscape was
3: always changing too. We must think of the Irish landscape as something which is really dynamic, changing all the time. I would like to move away from the idea of a graph showing decline of woodland all the time until we reached 1900 when we had one percent tree cover in ireland that is not the case it is a case of from the first farmers it is a graph that's going up and down woodland
0: clearances were often temporary as wild woods recovered grew back regained lost ground but by the first century a.d large areas of forest were rare. Instead, there were mosaics of open woodland and managed scrubland, farmsteads and fields. In early Christian Ireland, from the 5th to the 8th century, much of the country was mixed farmland with cattle, sheep, pigs and goats, and crops
3: such as barley and wheat. It was not really until the late 1100s when we got the next huge impact onto the Irish landscape, namely the Normans.
0: The Normans came to Ireland in the late 1100s, taking tracts of land from native Gaelic people and introducing entirely new approaches to land ownership, farming and profit. Agricultural estates were established, along with market towns, to encourage trade and
3: convert produce from the land into money. With the Normans were the major monastic orders, the Cistercians, the Benedictines, later the Augustinians, were a major farming order. All of these, these monasteries arrived with the Normans. Too often we talk about history
0: in terms of battles and conquests. But what I'm really interested in exploring here is how people's relationships with nature have changed through
3: the events of history. The Norman Knights were pretty ruthless, but they were good farmers, they were highly organized, and needless to say, they were looking down on the native Irish, which were at this stage still living more in commune with nature than these new invaders in. So these new invaders had a huge impact in several ways, in the sense that took the land from the Irish, they built castles, they built all these tower houses. They had this major influence. A set of early Irish
0: legal tracts, the Brehon Laws, reflected concepts around the need to maintain balance in the use of natural resources. In the Brehon Laws, trees and woodlands were highly valued. And there were severe penalties for those who damaged
4: or felled trees which they had no right to lived in in close proximity and attuned with nature and this i think continued certainly down to the end of the gaelic order in the 16th and into the 17th century and one of the the things that sort of shocked the Gaelic people of Ireland with, with the new plantations in Ireland was these weren't plantations of trees like uh, we see all over the the mountains. Uh, the planters cut down the forests and there's the the well-known poem Cuddy Enfimid, faster Gone Image. What will we do now without wood? Because wood was absolutely central to just about everything People did. Just as Neolithic culture
0: replaced the hunter-gatherers of the Mesolithic, and the Bronze Age replaced the Neolithic, Normans brought new approaches to owning and managing land. Centuries later, Cromwellian troops and settlers brought
5: another new culture to bear on this island. The planters, if they got a big tract of woodland, even though it would have been very wild and quite dangerous in their minds was still an incredibly valuable resource to be given at the time This is Dr Kieran Hickey from University
0: College Cork who has researched the extermination of wolves in Ireland in
5: the 17th and 18th centuries I think wolves are a huge part of our cultural history, pure part of our natural history as well. Obviously they're kind of gone out of the public mind and and the fact that they were a part of the landscape up until the late 1700s. So I think there's, there's a need to rediscover that aspect of our cultural and natural history as well.
0: Ancient people in Ireland had a reverence and respect for
5: wolves. So people co-inhabit relatively peacefully, but not always with them. Uh, And this was certainly the case with the traditional Irish chieftains and uh, and wolves in Ireland. They kept them as pets, certainly, uh, and there's plenty of evidence from that in the the literature. Uh, And they did hunt them, and there was a duty on them to hunt them, but not to exterminate them. So hunting them was really just keeping the population in check. Uh, And it also provided uh, uh, robes as well for, for the chieftains, as well. these were seen as very powerful symbols. They're also obviously in place names. Uh, for example, Bragg, B-R-E-A-G-H, or variations of it, is the most common uh, place name in Ireland related to wolves. It doesn't sound like wolves, and if you look at wolf in the Irish English dictionary, you'll see it's Mock but Brag or Braggie means wolf plain or wolf field, a place where a wolf, a flat place where a wolf was seen. But there's definitely over 50 or 60 wolf place names in Ireland.
0: But then came the Cromwellian plantations, New settlers brought over from England came from a landscape where wolves had been gone for several hundred years. They saw wolves as a direct threat to the successful colonisation of this new and untamed territory. The very existence of wolves here was justification for the taming of this wild land, for the extermination of wild woodlands, wild Irish natives as well as the native
5: culture and language. Well, they went about fairly systematically as the colonial government was quite good at. So they started with a series of bounties. The bounties were very substantial. It was six pounds for a female, five pounds for a male, uh, three pounds for hunting juveniles and 10 shillings per cub. So these were very substantial amounts of money in the mid 1600s. It's hard to get an, an obvious correlation with what we'd talk about today in terms of money values, but we're talking to thousands or tens of thousands. With the efficiency of a powerful invader, Cromwellian
0: troops went about taming the Irish landscape once
5: and for all. One of the aspects of course of of the demise of the wolf is that the landscape of Ireland changed very dramatically from 1600 onwards. So with the arrival of the plantations you get a, a dramatic decrease in the amount of native woodland cover. They deliberately burnt the woodland to clear it of wolves and woodcarn, which are Irish rebels, uh, uh, and to clear all the, the, the denizens of the woods they didn't want as well. So it was strategically cleared, but also primarily economically cleared. So the landscape changed. Then you had the creation of these large walled estates, which we still have today the creation of lots of farmland, the enclosure of field areas. So the landscape would have changed quite dramatically from being, in many parts, being wild to semi-wild to being much more contained. And as the populations grew, the pressure on land increased and the amount of forestry decreased. So the kind of landscape and ecology that wolves would have needed to survive was pretty much gone. And so it seems that this chapter of
0: our history, when the perception of nature as something sacred, was quashed. In the 18th and 19th centuries, remaining remnants of Ireland's wild woodlands were felled. The growing British Empire needed huge quantities of timber for buildings, for ships and for the iron smelting that was crucial for the Industrial Revolution. The majestic eagles revered by ancient Irish were one of the many species driven to extinction.
2: For many centuries, we learned to live with a kind of a a highly modified version of nature, but it was still, you know, reasonably reasonably abundant, and you know, you could find a diversity of of plants and animals more or less no matter where you went. This is Pórig Fogarty, an ecologist with the Irish Wildlife Trust
0: and author of the book Whittled Away.
2: Originally, you know, going back hundreds of years, it would have been uh, clearance of our forests, I suppose. That would have been the, the, the biggest uh, change in our landscape we would have seen historically. In more recent times, we've seen pretty much the industrialization of the natural world because so many plants and animals are, if they haven't already gone extinct, they're literally hanging on in tiny little corners here and there. In recent decades, farming has also undergone radical transformations. So I suppose if you imagine uh, an average farmer, if there was ever such a thing as an average farmer, but back in 1950s Ireland, uh, an average farm was was pretty small. Uh, it's probably had some crops it was growing, it would have maybe rotated those crops, it would have grown maybe corn one year and oats another year would have grown potatoes and turnips it probably had a few pigs, it probably had chickens, Uh, it might have had a donkey, it might have had uh, a few cattle knocking around, maybe there would have been one dairy cow, that's the model of farming as it used to be and it was very small scale, it would have used no uh, artificial sprays or anything like that you go to a farm these days, they're doing one thing. They're, they're rearing cattle for beef, uh, they're rearing cattle for dairy. We don't see pigs in the countryside anymore, more or less, because they're all indoors, as are chickens, they're all reared in enormous numbers in sheds and giant sheds. So uh, so that, that's, that homogenization of farming has mirrored exactly the homogenization of the countryside.
0: Our connection to the land is becoming so thin, it's in danger of slipping away altogether.
2: It's not that long since we started being tied to desks in buildings with with air conditioning. You know, for most of human history, we were outdoors in our activity. uh hunting and gathering and even farming isn't that old in the greater scheme of things but uh but even though we have become in many ways physically divorced from nature and the natural world our souls haven't become divorced from it we're still longing for it i think Uh, and that's why it's so important that we we fight really hard now to get it back
0: now in just a generation or two we have achieved utter dominion over nature
2: Of course, industrialisation of our forests. Uh, what passes for forests these days would be a million miles from what a, a forest ecosystem actually is. It's monocultures of, of non-native species. And it even stretches as far as our rivers, I mean, we've, we've straightened and deepened our rivers, they don't flow the way they used to flow, we've put barriers all over them. Uh, most of our rivers are polluted now. So. The, the river life, everything has just is just a, a, like a shadow of what, what it was in the past.
0: We are in the throes of a climate and biodiversity emergency in Ireland and across the world. And this is where I come into the picture, one of the 7.9 billion humans living on a severely degraded planet, wondering if there's another way for us to live to achieve the balance that was so important to our ancestors. One thing that gives me hope is that our culture still reflects the roots of a people deeply embedded in the natural world. And we know too that through this look back over our history that cultural transformations can happen within very short time frames. Could we be in the throes of another massive cultural shift? We understand now, better than at any other time in recorded history, how this unravelling of the web of life is a direct result of our culture. And that it impacts us all in ways that we are only beginning to understand. There has never been a greater motivation to transform the ways we live in the world. And I find comfort knowing that the future is far more open than we tend to imagine. So these are some of the topics I'll be exploring in episode 3 of Ireland's Changing Nature. The psychological need we have for personal connection with the natural world.
1: In part, what is happening to the planet is because we have
0: disconnected. The role of culture in restoring these relationships. Well, what would be different if people valued the environment so much that
3: they wouldn't let anybody harm it?
0: and the vision offered by habitat restoration
2: and rewilding. The magic about rewilding is that it encapsulates this idea of reconnecting ourselves with nature. So it's not just about bringing wild nature back to a landscape, it's bringing ourselves back to wild nature and re these connections that we've lost.
0: This is the fork in the road. What happens next is up to us.
4: That second episode of the series Ireland's Changing Nature was produced, written and narrated by Anya Murray. The research was by Lenny Antonelli, original music score was by Kevin Murphy and the sound design and mixing were by Julian Clancy.